0: alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversation. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm really excited about today's guest. Albert Flynn DeSilver is an internationally published poet, memorist, novelist, speaker, and workshop leader, and he teaches at Omega Institute, Esalen, Spirit Rock, and writing conferences nationally. His latest book, Writing as a Path to Awakening, A Year to Becoming an Excellent Writer and Living an Awakened Life. Albert, welcome to Conversations.
1: Thank you so much. A delight to be here.
0: Well, it's delightful to have you. It's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, one that I've struggled with for many, many years. So let's start out with you telling us about your journey as both a writer and a seeker of truth,
1: oh boy, um, how far back do we want to go? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we only have uh, less than an hour, so just uh, you know it's it's good for people to be able to ra- relate your experiences um, you know to their own, so it'd be great sure. to hear a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I'll give the the brief version. Um, but if you want the extended version, you can always read the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I grew up in in Connecticut uh, to mostly distant and alcoholic parents and a, a mean, nasty, and uh, violent governess. And um, so, although I did, we did grow up in in a certain amount of privilege, you know, with physical attributes. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of conscious love around. And um, so I started drinking at an early age. By 19, I'm a binge drinker. Uh, I get into a lot of trouble. There's multiple near-death experiences. Um, I barely survive, but do get sober. Somehow moved to California, meet a friend. A friend is in something called therapy. But it's not traditional therapy, being California and all. It turns out it's a psychedelic therapy cult. <laughs> there's no boundaries, <laughs> there's drugs involved. Uh, that's a whole journey and story. Um, but along the way, I do pick up on the, the creative threads from my childhood. My parents, my father was a, a um, an architect yeah. of some sort, not really renowned. I mean, his partner, he worked with a partner, John Blackley, who was um, fairly well known in that modernist tradition of architecture on the East Coast, particularly in the metropolitan New York area. Um, And my father assisted and designed uh, a number of really pretty interesting houses like Philip Johnson's. You know, they all came out of the Philip Johnson School of Architecture and the the glass house, the famous glass house aesthetic. and so there were always lots of books around, and my mother was constantly reading. And so, but that didn't impress me until a lot later in life, um, probably into my, my 20s and 30s. Um, and I did go to – I didn't know what to do with myself, and so I, I went to art school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started at uh, a little college in Ohio, uh, had a terrible time there, but I did manage to read a couple of books while I was there, including Winesburg, Ohio, which I mentioned in in this latest book and its influence at the time. I wasn't sure what that really was. Um, But then I carried on and transferred to the University of Colorado, wound up with a BFA in photography, and then uh, painted houses for a while, didn't know what to do with myself, applied sort of off the cuff for a graduate photo program in San Francisco somehow got in and wound up here in California taking pictures and eventually realizing that I didn't want to do photography because I was sent to a, a poetry reading uh, my second year. I was, you know, part of the, what we had to do at the Art Institute was uh, attend some art history classes, and Bill Berkson was the, the main art historian and art history teacher. He was also a fantastic poet, and he turned me on to all kinds of poetry. And he, he sort of demanded that I go to this poetry reading one night. And I wasn't really interested in poetry, but I didn't have anything going on, so I went to the reading. And it turns out it's the reading for the North, uh, for the Norton Anthology of of American, of sorry, postmodern American poetry. And it's an all-star cast. Diane De Prima is there, and Lynn and Ron Paget, and Alice Notley, and just a host of incredible poets from all over the country. And that night, Paul Hoover, the editor, gets up, and he reads a quote from Jack Spicer, the great Berkeley Renaissance poet. And in this poem, this is from The Imaginary Elegies, where Spicer says, The poet built a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) The poet built a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. And I thought that was just the most bizarre, amazing, wild, beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And that night, that was it. I started, you know, I kept art notebooks, but that was the night I started keeping a written journal and started writing scraps of poems. And that was the, the transformation where I realized, you know, I really I want to create that kind of magic with words and language, hmm. and so that's sort of where
0: it began. Wow, we have a lot of commonalities in our journey, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, talking about and looking at writing as a path to awakening, it's mm-hmm. um, more than a book about writing and creativity. You, you say it's about living an awakened life. So, what does that mean? To you to be awakened and to live an awakened life.
1: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. I I think for me it's it's about fully surrendering to the creative life, um, surrendering to a life of truth and honesty, uh, patience and clarity of mind. You know where one is really actively returning to presence over and over and over again and giving their attention and their their desire the primacy of their desire to connecting and to opening the heart toward love and compassion and realizing a larger sense of self that it's not the little me the little egoic me in my head that's important but it's the larger me that the the self that makes perception possible that makes belief possible that makes joy possible that's the self we want to cultivate that's the awakened life and you know when you align with those kinds of intentions and this is an intense practice it's not something that you can sort of conceptualize to be like oh yeah i love everybody and it's all good no i mean in my experience especially because i have such intense conditioning um, primarily self-hatred conditioning um, that it, it's an active practice and process. And that's what this book is kind of about. It's a, it's a guidebook to, to remind us that we need to return over and over and over and over again to this grand intent of being awake in the world and living in a peaceful, mindful manner that doesn't get caught up in the me versus them dichotomy that we see so much of in the larger culture. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, so many people have had the idea of being creative uh, brainwashed out of them from an early Mm. age. You know, you ask most people and they don't think they're creative. You know, I don't dance, I don't write, I don't make art. I'm just not a creative person. In your book, you talk about that we're all creative geniuses that's our nature so talk about what you mean by that
1: yeah well you know genius i know is a loaded term and we all think about you know when we hear that word we think about albert einstein or emily dickinson or you know pick your favorite uh, brilliant historical figure Um, but really i mean our very nature is creative we can't not be creative our bodies are always creating all the time on a cellular level we're constantly regenerating and expanding and decaying this is the the nature of the creative physical body and the mind too when we we pay attention to the mind we we see that it's it's constantly evolving it's constantly taking in new information expanding on old information and and hopefully um, evolving into a this sort of more expanded sense of self, this permeable self that's not trapped in the little me. Um, And, and so I think when we get in touch with that truth of our creative nature, then there's a sense of allowing like, Oh yeah, well maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I'm, I'm not this little voice in my head that says I'm not a creative person or, you know, I don't know how to dance, or I don't know how to write, or I don't know how to sing, or whatever. Um, and and that's where the transformational sense of possibility can enter in, where we can finally give ourselves to to the practice and take the writing workshop, or take the dance class, or you know, whatever that creative impulse is for you.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's uh, it's really interesting. Um, how you've combined your Buddhist meditation practices with uh, the writing and the opportunities to open to an awakened self in this book. And one of the things uh, you talked about is the precepts coming from a Buddhist background, All right. <laughs> the 10 precepts for writing uh, on the path of awakening. So can you share some of those with our listeners? Because I thought they were great. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, really, this comes out of uh,
1: all, you know, all great religious and spiritual traditions from around the world, um, be it, you know, traditional Western religions, Eastern religions, um, so-called primitive religions, Aboriginal cultures. You know, they all have these sort of precepts for being in the world and being in the world in relationship to others, not just other humans, but other beings and other elements? And how do we do that in a way that that doesn't destroy ourselves or the environment? And so this is kind of a, you know, I was riffing a little bit on this idea of the precepts and how it might apply to to the creative life, to the awakened creative life. And so it begins with compassion for all living things. Um, and it goes on to truth, accessing this the sense of truth. What does that word truth mean to you in your life and your experience? Not the little truth, but the big truth with a capital T. Uh, you know things like not stealing, um, and in relationship to to creativity, you know stealing is a plagiarism. That's a that's a big trigger. That's a big issue, right? And yet we know that that all great artists are influenced. And are inspired, uh, be that Picasso and his, his um, you know, riffing off of the the, the uh, masks, African masks, um, and creating this whole sense of, of conceptual and abstract painting, um, or you know T. S. Eliot referring to um, what did he say again? Um, uh, immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh there's this uh pop creative book out there by the by this gentleman austin cleon oh, yeah. the title of which is <laughs> "Steal like an artist
0: <laughs> right um which
1: is really interesting you know d- don't misinterpret that to be plagiarized but be mm-hmm. influenced allow the, the the larger culture to influence and inspire your creative intentions um You know, reading is such a huge, important aspect of writing. You know, I like to say that reading is writing. Writing is reading. There's no separation. Um, uh, What else is in there on this list? Merging with the one. You know, again, seeing the sense of self as more broad, more open, more blended in with the elements. Um, And um, we have uh, non-grasping. So we know that from, from Buddhist teachings and um, all you know, original human cultural teachings that, that this is a temporary experience. Being embodied is temporary. And what do we do with that? Well, the first order of business is to don't get too attached, right? Don't grasp. And in, and in uh, creativity and writing, don't get too attached to your ideas. Your great ideas, because they're going to disappear. You're going to forget them. But writing them down is one way to keep track and to keep motivated, to keep inspired. Um, Do you want me to keep going?
0: Well, those are... (laughs) I I wanted you to give some examples. I mean, the thing that, Albert, that I really loved about your book, particularly, is that it's not just another how to write the great American novel. Uh, It's really about conscious writing and creativity, and how that can help us to live more consciously. And that's the aspect that I think, um, you know, people are, are particularly interested in. You, you talk about three evolutionary steps of awakening consciousness. So for me, the practice of writing, and, and for me it's, you know, when I write, um, you know, articles and things, I'm always asking myself, is this true? You know, Mm -hmm. is this true? Which takes me right into a place of having to really look at the truth and see the own patterns and influences of what I write in a way to question that. So I'd love for you to talk about, you know, how uh, these these steps of writing take us into awakening, living in an awakened state, as we talked about earlier.
1: Yeah, well, I think it, part of it is not really knowing what we think until we write it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I have practices in the book. Every chapter is it's broken down. There's 12 chapters for the 12 months of the year, each themed, um, beginning with rebirth in January and ending with sanctuary in December. And it's meant to be kind of an evolution throughout the year. I mean, you can start any time, but it's, it's kind of modeled in that way so that you can move through the year with these different themes and expand. Um, but um, so it it's, you know, for me, they've been parallel paths, creativity, writing, and mindfulness. I started sitting meditation about 20, 22 years ago or so. And it was right around the time that I was transitioning, I was graduating from the Art Institute and finding my way as an artist into the written word. And I was living across the street from Spirit Rock from for what a long time I thought of it was a... Mediation center. <laughs> I used to drive <laughs> by Spirit Rock. See the sign, Spirit Rock Mediation Center. So I was wondering why is there a mediation center out in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> and uh, my friend was like, "No, dope. That's meditation." <laughs> like, What's that? You know, my parents that's certainly great. had no contact with meditation. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. so I one night someone took me to Jack Kornfield's Monday night uh, class Sit. and. Mm-hmm. That was it, you know, I, and he read numerous poems that night. And I thought, wow, this is a way to, to access a deeper level of not only awareness, but creativity through the written word. And uh, he had one night which he devoted entirely to poetry. And uh, I, I was just, I was smitten and realized this, this needs to be my path. And uh, so I never turned back and you know, started going to day longs and then longer retreats and then silent overnight retreats and extended retreats and just started getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I just you know, it became a very, very much of a healing path for me. And all along the way, I was writing, writing it down, writing the interior experience down to get clarity, to get insight. To get compassion for myself and ultimately others.
0: I love Jack and Spirit Rock, and so many of the teachers. I've actually spent some amount of time there and and really uh, uh, enjoy the peaceful place. and And I'm thinking about the the whole idea of awakening. And mm-hmm. you know, you're writing to awakening. Well, first of all, to awakening, what? And secondly that my experience is that people are so immersed in trying to get somewhere Mm -hmm. rather than be that awakening where they are. And -hmm. there's a lot of mischief around this path to enlightenment. Um, So I'd love for your input and thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the great misconception is especially in a consumerist culture right we want to we want to buy it we want to own it we want to corral it in and control it and figure it out and get it right mm-hmm. And that's completely opposite of the whole philosophy and aesthetic and idea of of awakening and enlightenment and truth and self whatever you want to call it um, And in my experience it is, a, it's a practice of being. There's nowhere to get to other than where you are. Um, I do think that there are sort of different levels of awareness. So there is this a kind of an evolutionary path um, that that kind of ends at this point where you don't see any separation, where you don't see massive difference, where it isn't taking over your perceptions and your actions and that your heart is open and you can love the difficult people in your life and you can love the difficult situations in your life and you don't see the world as completely problematic, but that you see situations arrive and that when you approach them with the heart of compassion and the heart of love and patience, then the whole, the whole dynamic shifts and you can act from a different kind of place instead of react from conditioning. Um, So it's really an empowerment. Uh, And, you know, we like to project onto the world that there's these enlightened people that they have long hair and white robes and beards (laughs) or flowers in their hair or whatever. You know, there's this idea and that's just an idea. How do we get rid of that idea? Well, we don't get rid of it. there's no need to get rid of ideas, there's no need to get rid of thoughts. There's just returning to a space that allows those thoughts and those images and those projections, perceptions, beliefs, feelings, etc, to be there and just to do their dance, to bow to them and let them go. Yeah. right I mean Brilliant. it's when we cling on to them and identify with them that they become problematic. You know, I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. I believe in white supremacy. I believe in black power. I believe in whatever it is. You know, all these dichotomies of identity that seem to to really bind us instead of connect us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that, in what you're saying, that reminds me of how much our beliefs shape our perception and our worldview, and, and so many people just can't get that the things that we believe are creating the world that we live in. And writing is such a great tool to begin to unravel and look at the mm. beliefs that are living us, really. What are your thoughts around that?
1: Well, I always like to say that it's, it's writing the story to let go of the story. Mm. You know, that's why I wrote my memoir, Get It Out of the Body, Onto the Page. And may there be some insight along the way about that story and my over-identification with that story. Yeah. May there be some insight as to how I can transcend that story. Not deny the story, not deny my past, but use it as a launching pad to a more broad identity, a more open and more compassionate sense of self. Um
0: yeah, we don't we don't think that we are our story. We think from our story which is part of the problem. There's no there's no place to go from there if you are your story, but it's like having a hand. I have a hand, but I'm not my hand. <laughs> right
1: exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But we can get caught up in our, you know, that larger story of, you know, for me it was the story of abuse and addiction of never amounting to anything of not having a creative voice that matters to the world. That was my story. And how do I let that go? Well, I write into it. That's one way. And I sit with it. I sit with those thoughts and those doubts and let them permeate in me. I feel into them in the deepest, most uncomfortable way and be really present to them. Mm-hmm. and all that discomfort, I think most of us aren't willing to do that. It takes a tremendous amount of courage, you know, in my experience. And I think that, of course, depends on the level of abuse or the level of conditioning, um, the level of trauma in some, some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in not, certainly not impossible. I mean, there's so many shining examples of people who have transcended really incredible stuff. Like, you know, my little privilege story is whatever it is. But, I mean, you know, we're talking about slavery and um, extreme violence and entire families being, you know, decimated before your eyes and prison, you know, wrongly convicted, you know, lifelong prison sentences and people showing up and being present and forgiving. And, you know, it's extraordinary.
0: It the is potential extraordinary.
1: for human transformation, I think, is infinite. And, um, and yet, if, if, if you're unwilling to sit with yourself in silence, then you'll never get there. If you're unwilling to meet the page and to write down your fears and anxieties and terrors, you'll never get there.
0: Yeah, so many people are trying to either suppress their wounding or Mm -hmm. uh, justify it or be right about it. And what we often don't recognize is that really our wounding is our access to our gifts and the opportunity to be real uh, and be an inspiration to other people by the way that we relate. I mean, I come from a similar, probably even more, you know, lots of suicide, death Mm. and murder and things like that in Mm. my background. And, and those things are really what allow me to speak as an authority in the area. And I don't mean authority like better than or something like that, but it, it it speaks from a place of real truth because I've had to grapple with those things, and I think that we all have that wounding. We all have that, you know, what I call in my world soul loss. That, um, mm. you know, the places that we've suppressed, um, like our creativity, and um, uh, you know, and so writing into that. And one of the things you talk about is free writing and I uh, and I really really love that. I was a you know, early writers that influenced me, like Kerouac and other people who um uh, trying to think of his name, but free writing was a great opportunity for me to actually go back and, and discover things I didn't know I knew about myself, even though oh, I wrote sure. them down.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's a remarkable practice just to write spontaneously from the heart, from the body, without the, the controlling, thinking mind running the show and, and commenting on whether it's good or bad, or whether you should spell that correctly or not, or, you know, just like, just expulging, that's not really a word, <laughs> expunging or ex, <laughs> expelling onto the page directly um as a as a starting point, you know, to see what's there. And then of course, attending with discerning mind, um how this can fit together in some creative and interesting way that would communicate with others.
0: And how we can rewrite our own story. We well, yeah. you know we can reframe the entire story into a hero or heroines so I had the great opportunity to to um I got a blanket to study with Joseph Campbell back in the mm. in wow. uh, the 60s, and and um, the whole idea of the hero or heroine's journey to look, mm-hmm. you know, at the wait a minute, actually I survived and I'm thriving in the face of that. So one of the things that's really challenging with people, though, is their resistance to taking mm-hmm. the time in these crazy busy Frenetic uh, technology lives, lives we lead to, to to write down, or you know what it is that's happening, and to really look at that with a truthful eye. So, how do we learn to move through the resistance? Uh, what what uh, you know, just to get the words down on the page, and then use that resistance perhaps as a deeper awakening to our own spiritual evolution.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first step is really to acknowledge that it's there, the resistance, and be willing to feel that resistance in the body. Like, what is resistance? What is that, that impulse to ignore or to suppress or to deny? Um, what's that about? And to really sit. This is where the meditation becomes very handy, to just sit with that resistance and to allow that resistance, to make friends with that resistance, to get to know that resistance. Uh, and then what happens is you see that resistance dissolve or disappear. I mean, that's what's happened in my experience. I think you know, everyone should find out for themselves. When you really surrender to that energetic experience of resistance, what's there? And I think what happens is things start to loosen up a little bit in the body, And suddenly you're like, oh, well, maybe I do have 15 minutes in the morning to jot down some ideas and some, you know, an outline for this book or a few poems or whatever. Or maybe I do have a half hour at the end of the day um, to reflect on my experience. You know, we get so caught up in these little ideas of You know, time, I don't have any time. People always say, I don't have enough time. Really? You don't have enough time? That's absurd. You know, time is like this thing that we invent. You know, we think of it as a physical, limited concept or thing that we have to abide by. But time is just purely an invention. And when we realize that, then we can always create more of it. We can always manufacture more of it because we are tapped into that universal creative force that is the universe. Hmm. And so we are agents of time creation. We're not bound by the little voice that says, I don't have enough time.
0: You know, I was just remembering a, a past experience. Um, I used to pride myself on getting through school without ever reading any books. <laughs> and um, <Uh-oh. laughs> and I, did, I didn't read. Um, and then... I can't remember what grade it was, but I had this English teacher and said, oh, I want to see how you write. Just, you know, in addition to being a, a rebel, um, all kinds of other things, you know, I was uh, a smart ass. So he said, write this article, you know. So I just scribbled out this, this uh, story or whatever. And it was why all English teachers should be deported to England. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sloppy that. and messy, and I made sure. all, these, uh, all these points, you know, and I thought, ha, okay, we'll see how we're going to do this, this year. <laughs> oh, my God, that's <laughs> well, great. That would go over beautifully <laughs> in this day and age, right? Uh, 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 uh. Oh, English teachers so <laughs> I, I got this letter back, and it had no markings on it except on the front it said, very creative. Nice. And I thought, I just lampooned you and you're saying very creative. And mm-hmm. this guy took an interest in me, you know. And before the end of the year, I was like, you know, reading and writing T.S. Eliot and Ginsberg. And I just uh-huh. fell in love with, you know, all these different authors, Wordsworth. And, and um, there was There was a mentor there. There was a person that said, here's a pretty screwed-up, troubled kid. And, um, God, I'm getting tears talking about him, Mr. Mm, Quackenbush. And um, anyway, he made such a difference. And and where I'm getting to about this is talking about mentoring and people Mm -hmm. who are writing often try to write without uh, either reading which is the first point I was trying to make. And secondly, um, you know, getting a mentor when we get stuck and when we're in this place of resistance that we're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Essential. Essential. I mean, reading is the ultimate mentor. And then you, you sort of have your your spiritual guides in the creativity world. Um, you know, whether you know them or not is kind of irrelevant. Um you know, for me, they're Whitman and Dickinson and um, Ted Bergen and Lorca and Sandberg and Mary Oliver and, you know, mm-hmm. on and on goes the list. But I consider these writers mentors in a sense. And I, you know, I actively call them forth uh, when I sit down to write or when I get stuck. Because we can't, you know, we we do have this notion that the writer is a solitary person struggling in their little cabin in the woods and that's such an old tired notion Um, but the, the older i get the more i realize that writing is a collaborative act you know sure there's this this point where it's just you and the page but shortly after that it's you and the page and an editor and your neighbors and your spouse or your best friend who's reading, and you're reading it aloud, or it's your dog, right? I read to my dog all the time. <laughs> She's like my first best listener. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and then it, at a certain point, it is wonderful to have mentors, people who see us, who get us, right? And you described that experience very beautifully. When someone for the first time says, yeah, I see you. You're creative. You can do this. Uh, You know, for me, that was that was Bill Berkson. Hmm. Uh, My I failed my year end review at the San Francisco Art Institute in graduate art school. Failed it. They wanted me to do it over again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And Bill was like, meanwhile, he was stuffing Xerox copies of old Ted Berrigan manuscripts in my mailbox and saying, check out poetry. Check out this world and this universe. Um. And before that, it was Alex Sweetman at the um, University of Colorado, a photo historian, photographer, uh, who, you know, in this class of introductory photography, I was just sort of mesmerized and curious. And I brought him my portfolio of pictures from, that I had taken in Africa, and he said, hmm, not bad. <laughs> and that was enough for me you know. no one had ever said not bad ever um, and I didn't get picked on in that class You know, he tended to pick on the sorority um, sorority people and, and fraternity people who just took the photo classes because it was an easy A so they thought but if you got on Sweetman's bad side and weren't into it really actively participating (laughs) you were going down (laughs) and uh, so I was gleefully engaged and curious I loved looking at pictures and he saw that and um, that made a huge difference.
0: It's interesting a a big part of my undergraduate work was actually in photography in fact I was headed to Brooks (laughs) until at San Jose State I got into the color lab and got frustrated and got tired of carrying around a four by five and uh-huh. And all the stuff that I used to do. I wanted to be, you know, Cardio Brisson. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but
1: I write about him in, in uh my
0: memoirs. I, I noticed you mentioned him in this book too, and and yeah. just brought back old memories of of my love for photography. But what I want to explore with you is the senses. So that gave me a way of looking at space and the things, you know, not just the tree, but the space around the tree and mm-hmm. how, you know, sometimes I sit on the ferry here going over to Vancouver and and I look at, you know, how things flow together and and people move together and, and things as energy and, uh, and opening up the the senses of, of hearing and smelling and tasting, and that's something you get into in your book. And I think it's so important for a writer to be embodied, number one, mm-hmm. and number two, really, and it's the same as I teach shamanism, you know, you don't travel to non-ordinary reality uh, and not take your body and your senses with you. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's fantasy. Um so, um, which is nothing wrong with that, but it's not very powerful from from a shamanic perspective anyway, mm-hmm. but also from a writing perspective because it comes from the head and not from sure. the heart. so talk about senses and the power of working with the senses.
1: Oh boy, yeah, uh essential, right? I mean all the the best writing that we would qualify as the best or good or great or interesting is is particular and unique to that individual's sensory experience and the, the sensory details that they notice. And so when people say to me, oh, well, it's already been done and, you know, I don't really have anything to add to this, you know, which could so easily be said for writing as a path to awakening. Like how many book do we really need another self-help book, right? Do we need another book on how to write or how to be in the world? No. Probably not. But in a way, yes. Yes, we do. Because this particular book has not been written from my little unique experience, my perspective. Not that my perspective is very, any more interesting than anybody else's. The point being that your perspective is absolutely crucial and important to the evolution of consciousness on this planet, just as important as Albert Einstein's or cornell west's or emily dickinson's or anybody else's you know you get to choose how far you want to go with this expression of consciousness but it starts with a surrender to embodiment and a surrender to experiencing your senses fully in the body and it comes back to this thing i was saying earlier about courage it takes an enormous amount of courage i think to be present to bodily sensation and to the senses it also takes time and presence mm-hmm. you know the poet is nothing if not a great observer mm. um so it requires stillness and it also you know it brings us into this state of awareness where the space between the words is as important as the words themselves yeah it's like the space like john cage in the space between the notes the silence is what's there beyond the silence. you know. And he comes out of that whole Zen tradition and practice coming to America in the, the 40s and 50s. Um, but it does, it, it takes a huge commitment and a sense of courage to be willing to go into that, those sensory details and to write them as only you can write them. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I do on the side for fun is I teach Gabrielle Ross five rhythms. And Gabrielle was a huge influence among other people in my life of 40 years of dancing with her. Oh, terrific. And, um, you know, one of the things that she always says, if you want to heal the psyche, you move the body. And Uh and, uh, it's amazing when we do... uh, moving meditation, not just sitting meditation, but moving meditation, what opens up and what gets released and the images and the experience that arise from conscious movement as well as sitting movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a practice. And one of the things i think is imper- important you you mentioned moving from an emerging to an emerged writer is mm-hmm. the the key there is practice so i think that's mm-hmm. an important thing to share with with people who want to write the importance of that
1: absolutely you know i use to to kind of link this these two concepts i used the example of my friend jimmy who's an amazing mountain biker and I've done five rhythms a few times and uh, very much enjoyed it, and I love that kind of um, open, uh, unmitigated, and sort of unconstrained expression of, of dance and movement. It's, it's very healing, and you, know, and you can get into that place where you don't care what anyone else thinks, and you're just there with the movement and the music, and it's just sublime. Um, And I do this a lot on a mountain bike, and I use my friend Jimmy as an example of practice. He started riding a bicycle when he was five, and he's one of the most incredible bicycle riders. He's like an acrobat, and just the stuff he can do on a bike is really amazing. And it comes from just this repetition of always riding his bike, you know, and enjoying that and loving that. And so that's how we, we need to get to the page of just really enjoying this act of, writing stuff down and typing it up and tinkering with it and reading it aloud and and getting over those voices in the head that say oh I can't do this or this isn't that interesting or I'm not good enough or whatever um, they are and, and and keeping the body and when you get too constrained when you're you've been sitting too long get up and go ride the bike mm-hmm. crank up the tunes and start dancing around the living room <laughs> you know reconnect with that movement of the body it's just as is crucial and essential as being there in the yeah. chair just cranking out your 1500 words a day or your 2000 words a day or whatever it is you need to do to finish that book.
0: Well, it's also what I do when I get stuck, you know, when I'm I, there mm-hmm. are times when as a writer, you know, I mostly write articles, not novels somehow. I don't have enough attention span I think yet. But yeah. Uh, you know when I get stuck uh, at around a sentence or when I'm looking at something I'm going that just isn't quite how I want to say that to communicate that doesn't communicate then that's what I do is I do crank up the tunes and Mm -hmm. and I get up there and and we mentioned free writing but I don't think we took it quite as deep as as uh And as powerful as that is for people, so why don't you talk about the practice of free writing a little more there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would start with the silence in the body, being in the body and being silent for whether that's for five minutes or you know forty-five minutes, as long as you can do. And then getting some sort of a timer, whether that's your phone or a clock or whatever, setting that timer, having your notebook. Um, there by your side, and setting that timer for you know, you can start with small increments of four or five minutes and expand out 10, 15, 20 minutes. And you have a, a prompt and you commit to not taking your hand off the page. I encourage people to, to do their free rights by hand. You don't have to, but it's it's, I encourage it because it's. Again, it's, it's writing from the body. It's coming from the bones, from the viscera. Uh, there's some sort of a different experience when you're clicking away on a keyboard. Um, anyways, you just go from margin to margin based on that prompt wherever your mind takes you. You don't stop to pause to correct or to pick the right word or to judge whether this is a complete sentence or this is a complete thought even but just let the words tumble out on the page as they will in this moment and you keep a sense of urgency and movement and um and you don't stop and if you can't think then you just write about not being able to think i can't think i can't think i can't think and then you know a, a new thought or idea comes into the mind and you're back on it and ding the timer goes off and you see what you got <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of the essence it's of it. It's such a
0: great way to get out of the head, uh, you know, to yes, just say, exactly. I'm just going to write whatever words come to mind, whatever images, maybe have an intention at the beginning of it uh, to mm-hmm. write about your life story or some more specific thing, you know, the time I went camping with my father or something like that, sure. and, then, and then use that as a context, but then just go for it. And, and it
1: doesn't have to begin with the with the sitting meditation. I mean, you can do a walking meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do a five-rhythms dance routine, crank up the music and get in your body that way. Mm-hmm. But I found that coming out of a, a meditative state, an embodied state, is very, very powerful for for the
0: the free rites. Yeah, I do too. So tell us some other ways that we can activate and ignite our creativity and imagination you have lots of uh, tips in this wonderful book and let me tell our listeners if you just tuned in i've been talking to albert flynn de silver about his latest book writing as a path to awakening a year to becoming an excellent writer and living an awakened life
1: yeah so i you know another important thing for me is spending time in nature and just being in the non-human world, because we're so inundated with the human world now more than ever with our cell phones, it's non-stop with the input. And to take a step out and be in the non-human world and to walk around, whether if you live in a city, that's fine, be in the park. Um, if you're in a coastal city, if you can, go out to the beach and connect with the ocean. But just being with those primal, immediate sounds is extremely important. I mean, that's the, the grand creative force in action. And to to sponge that up, to be in communion with that energy and that force is to to awaken your creativity.
0: Mm. So much more to talk about, Albert. And unfortunately, we're running out of time here. So I just want to say... Uh, Albert's website is Albert Flynn DeSilver, and spelled D-E-S-I-L-V-E-R dot com. And the book is Writing as a Path to Awakening. And of course, um, just want to express, Albert, my gratitude to you, deep gratitude for all of our listeners for writing and taking the time to create this beautiful book And taking the time to be with us today on Conversations, Uh, it's really great for anyone thinking about not only learning to deepen uh, the truth of their writing, but to also open their heart and live a more mindful life. So much gratitude from all of us.
1: Well, it's been an absolute joy, and I really appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity and the great connection and your fabulous questions. So thank you again.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Albert. We will be in touch, I'm sure. And blessings to you. And uh, thank you all for listening today. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, please call 530-477-7757 or go to our website at arewelistening.net.